open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Fountain Avenue, that name has a lot of special meaning for me. That's where I grew up. The road I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but Fountain Avenue was off a very busy thoroughfare called Germantown Parkway. So think Appalachian Parkway, except there weren't businesses, there were only houses. And the parkway was elevated a few feet above the houses, and it was six lanes or something. It was kind of right on top of the road. If it sounds like a NASCAR racetrack, that's exactly what it was, okay? And people driving excessively high rates of speed. And so I remember it was 1975, thereabouts, when I heard a crash. Our family did while we were watching, I'm sure, um, Leave it to Beaver, Beaver reruns or something. And we knew there was some sort of commotion outside. Now, understand for a, a six-year-old boy growing up in the 70s, there's no cell phones, no cable TV, bored out of my skull. This had the potential to be the highlight of the year, right? So we all go rushing outside up to the road to find that on one of the steep curves on the parkway, a truck had gone airborne and had hit a house and was sort of embedded into the chimney. Now, I'm telling you this story, nobody was seriously hurt, okay, so thankfully. But as people gathered, here's what was fascinating, was to sort of piece together what had happened. There was, there was different groups of folks who were focusing on different, focusing in on different parts of the accident. So there was physics guy, you know him, right? How fast was he going and what was the velocity? And I need to get my, um, my protractor out here and measure the sine and cosine. I mean, there was that guy, right? Then there was, there was medical lady. Was anyone hurt? Where's the ambulance? Where's the doctor? Were they wearing seatbelts? And the answer, of course, to that is no. No one wore seatbelts in the 70s. And then there was, of course, the engineering geek. He was sort of evaluating all the damage done and was the house structurally sound and what was it going to take to get the tow truck to get out of there? All of that to say, if you were to, to line up all of those accounts and you were to try to harmonize them and to get a cohesive story, there, there would be a lot of similarities and obviously there would be a lot of differences. Now, these differences are not necessarily contradictions. They're just a particular perspective. They're giving a particular angle or insight from that person's vantage point. And that's really the same thing that we have in our four Gospels. See, our Gospels are not exhaustive accounts of the life of Jesus, as if they're tr each writer is trying to record each and every single thing that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. Each of the Gospel writers is giving a unique vantage point, a unique perspective on the life and death and ministry of Christ. And that's important for us to keep in mind when we come to our text today, where we're going to read and learn about the calling of the very first disciples into the ministry of Jesus. Now, when you look at the other accounts of the calling of these, of these men into ministry to follow Jesus, they're, they're, they're all going to offer something unique. You know, for example, Luke goes into great detail about what preceded the call that Jesus had told Simon to Peter to cast his net and he caught all these fish and Simon was like super overwhelmed and compelled and began to worship Jesus. And the reason Luke includes this is because he has an apologetic concern. He's wanting to show the Gentile world that Jesus is, in fact, is the son of God. He's working these powerful miracles. What's interesting though 
is that Matthew doesn't talk about any of that. In fact, his is the shortest account of the calling of the disciples that we find among all four Gospels. Because for Matthew, he's not so much interested in the details of the calling. He's interested in the purpose of the calling, the nature of the call. In other words, how is it that Jesus calls people to himself? And when Jesus does call people to himself, what does he call them to? And that's really going to be the heart of what we look at from Matthew chapter 4 today. It's a short text, 18 through 22, and I'm going to invite you, if you can, to join me in standing as we read the Word of God. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's pray. Father, this might be a story that we've never thought a lot about or overlooked because it is so brief. But yet, Lord, you inspired Matthew to write it and to include it here. And so, Father, we pray as we sort of peel back the layers of this text that we would be able to see something about the nature of the way you work and how you call, how you move, how you change hearts. So, Lord, give us wisdom, give us understanding. Let us know how to apply this to our own lives. And we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. There, there's, there's, I was going to say there's three different calls in this text, but that, that's kind of a misleading. There's one fundamental call in this text that has sort of two related callings that kind of flow out of that primary calling. And that all sounds complicated and needs a Venn diagram. So we're just going to go with three callings. So here we go. We're going to talk about the call to Christ, the call to community, and the call to commission, all right? So let's talk about what I think is probably the primary thing going on here in the text, the call to Christ. Look at verse 1. It says, while, I'm sorry, verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee. Now, the, the Greek construction literally means to walk about or to walk with a purpose. In other words, this is Matthew's way of telling us there was nothing happenstance about this interaction. There was nothing accidental. It wasn't like Jesus was going on a, on a stroll and he was having a little time to himself on the beach and he, shazam, he happens to run into these four guys and they end up having this sort of serendipitous spiritual conversation. That is not what's happening here. Jesus is purposefully, deliberately, on a mission. He's made a beeline to the Sea of Galilee and to the shore in this time, at this place, 
because he knows that's exactly where these two sets of brothers are going to be. And he knows exactly where they're going to be and what they're going to be doing. And as soon as he sees them, Matthew doesn't go into the preliminaries. He doesn't give us the details. He just says that, that Jesus issues a command. He issues a directive. And he says, follow me. And the word real, literally means come after. So in ancient times, and particularly in this era of human history and, and in Jewish history, in, in rabbinic circles, if there, was a, if there was a rabbi and you were a part of his ministry, he would sort of walk around, walk in front, okay? And his disciples would follow kind of after him in his train, listening to him, taking notes. I'm sure this is what happens dads when you go to the mall with your kids, right? You're walking along and they're following in your train, hinging on every word. Okay, not so much. Well, this is, this is the way this would happen. And so this idea of come after me would be this idea of this, of this invitation to, to come and follow me. But here's what's unique about Jesus's call as a rabbi compared to all other rabbis at the time. See, in that day, it wasn't rabbis who picked the students. It was students who picked the rabbi. Think about this in terms of being a high school student and you're deciding which college you want to go to and you're filling out applications and scholarships and you're comparing one program to this and this faculty to this one and the location there and the location there and you're, and you're finally compelled to choose one university of the other, which for some of you might just be the one that happens to accept you. But you get the idea, right? Well, that's what's happening here. It's not what's happening here. This is not the disciples aligning themselves with Jesus. This is not the disciples saying, hmm, there's Nicodemus, and then there's Jesus, and then there's this rabbi and that rabbi. I think we'll think we'll cast our lot with Jesus. No, 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 it's the exact opposite. Jesus chooses them. Jesus calls them. Jesus commands them. And of course, this is consistent with everything else we see um, in the ministry of Jesus. Listen to John chapter 15. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And now Matthew tells us that they follow immediately. Literally, they follow at once. Now, this doesn't mean that this is their, has their only interaction with Jesus. We know from John's gospel, for example, they probably met Jesus a year before. They were certainly acquainted with Jesus. We know from Luke's gospel, again, that Jesus had been interacting with them around this idea of fishing and catching fish and those sorts of things. But Matthew doesn't go into this. And now why is that? Matthew, I think, wants to emphasize to us the nature of, of the calling that Jesus has upon a person. And it's simply this. When Jesus calls someone, Jesus calls them decisively, irrevocably, and effectively. Jesus always gets his man. Jesus always gets his woman. Think about John chapter 11 just for a second. Lazarus, he had been dead how long? Four days. 
Jesus tells them to roll the stone away, and everybody's saying, that's probably not a good idea. He's been in there four days. His corpse is rotting. I love the way the King James Version puts it. What, what does it say that they say? No, Jesus, he what? He stinketh, okay? And, and you have my permission, families, to incorporate that into your family repertoire. There's dad. He stinketh. What, what, whatever the case may be, right? So, so what happens... When they roll the tomb, does Jesus sort of walk out? I mean, does, does Lazarus sort of saunter on out? No, okay, he, he's dead. Jesus has to issue a command. What does he say? Come out. Now, the Greek literally means Lazarus, here now. What is, what, what, what are we being shown there? Well, we're being shown, church, nothing less than a picture of salvation. We're showing the nature of how Jesus calls someone to himself. Now, theologians call this effectual calling or effective calling. And this is the way R.C. Sproul defines this. this, is, this is, I think this is really good. Effective calling is the internal call by which God calls his elect to himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, changing the disposition of their hearts through regeneration. The inward call that is accomplished by the Holy Ghost is effectual in that it brings about God's desired and decreed consequence. The inward call is irresistible. Not in the sense that I don't have the power to resist it, but my resistance cannot overcome it. God's effectual call effects what he intends to do, namely to bring us to saving faith. You see, there, 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 there's what we're talking about here, there, there's an internal call and there's an external call as it relates to us. Now, the, the external call is the one that goes out through human agency. So preaching, that's what's happening this morning. There's an external call to you to believe, to trust, to repent, to come to, to Jesus. It's what happens, parents, when you're talking to your kids, you're sharing, you're teaching, you're, you're calling them to obedience, you're calling them to, to follow Christ. It happens in any sphere where we are instructing or talking to others, teachers, parents, pastors, friends, this happens in community groups, right? That's the external call. That's the thing that we have charge over. But the internal call, that's God's business. He is the only one who can change a heart. See, the internal call is God's supernatural work of his Holy Spirit that changes hearts and minds. See, I... I can, and, and, and on one hand, this can be um, discouraging to us, but it can be greatly encouraging to us. There, there is a lot of us in here that have been trafficking in the external call to others in our life for a long time. Maybe it's, maybe it's with a prodigal child. Maybe it's with a friend who's sort of walked away from the faith. Maybe it's with a family member. Maybe it's with a spouse. Maybe it's someone who is, who's close to you and, you and you've 
talked and you've shared and you've prayed and you just don't seem to be getting anywhere. See, this, this alleviates the burden to the sense of saying, you know what, no matter how hard you try, ultimately you can't change a heart. That's God's business. Because how do you think it was that you were saved? It wasn't that you woke up one morning and said, you know what, I'm going to walk right out of that grave. I'm Lazarus. You know what? I'm tired of being in here. I'm tired of being wrapped up. I kind of smell, need a shower. It's time for me to get going. Guys, that's not how salvation happened. That's not how salvation happened with you or with anyone else. Listen to the way Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, and you were, what? Dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now this is, I love it when scripture does this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. You know, if, if Disney's in the, in the process of expunging all their politically incorrect rides, right? But if you have a chance, ride the Pirates of the Caribbean, and, and there's, a, there's a scene in there, and I think it's probably the Johnny Depp animatronic guy saying this, right? He says, dead men tell no tales, right? Well, why? Well, well that's self-explanatory. Paul says, Christian, that was your condition spiritually. You didn't make yourself alive. God called you effect, effectually by his Holy Spirit, and your eyes were open, your hearts were opened, and you saw Jesus for who he truly was, and you were compelled to place your faith and trust in him. See, that's, that's the salvation call. That's the salvation process. And this is what Matthew is holding up for us. He's saying that Jesus called, hearts were changed. Jesus called, Hearts and minds were transformed. Jesus called, and they immediately responded. Listen to Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, here's the word, he also what? Called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It does not say those who are called might be justified. Neither does it say those who are justified can become unjustified. Guys, when, when Jesus decisively changes a heart and draws that person to faith, you forever belong to him. There's nothing that can undo that. So this call of Christ is a powerful one. It's a revocable one. It's, it's a life-changing, transforming one. And let me just say, 
Don't grow weary in prayer. Don't grow weary in sharing your faith. Don't, don't grow weary, Christian, in sending out that call, that external call. That's, that's, that's your responsibility. It's God's business, God's responsibility to change hearts. And that is what he does with these men. Now, as he calls these, two, these four men to himself, there follows from this two sorts of subordinate calls or two things that are to mark their lives or that do mark their lives. And that's going to bring us to our second point. Let's look at the first of these, the call to community. Now, what we want to notice first about this is that the call to follow Christ, listen, radically reorients every relationship in your life. Now, he tells us about James and John, that they are with their father, Zebedee. And, this, and the reason they're with their father, it's probably because they are the youngest of the disciples. In fact, John is the, probably the youngest. He lives the longest, okay, well, almost into the, to the second century. And it says that hearing the call of Jesus, they left their father in the boat, to which I'm sure Zebedee told Jesus, thank you very much, that was helpful, Right. Now, let me just say this. This does not mean that James and John literally abandoned their families. Let, let's remember something. Peter had a wife at this point. Peter had a mother-in-law. You can see their, the, the remains of their house, and if you go to Capernaum in Israel right now, John's family, the reason that Matthew is probably including the names of their father is that their parents were probably a part of the community of faith, the church at this point. The, the point is not when Jesus calls you, he calls you to abandon all family ties. Jesus, Matthew's point here is to show you that when Jesus calls his disciple and he's proclaiming his kingdom, what he is fundamentally doing is he is, is establishing a new community. He's transforming the nature and identity of all our relationships. See, isn't it interesting, as Jesus proclaims the kingdom, his first task is to call to him what? Kingdom workers. He's establishing a community, an outpost, a community of disciples who will journey with him, who will carry his mission forward. In other words, guys, I don't think the church was founded at Pentecost. I think the church was founded right here. See, Jesus is gathering up his kingdom followers, his disciples, into a new community that we call the church, and whose fundamental identity in relationship to other people is now transformed. Now, one of the things you've heard me say before, um, I think to call yourself a follower of Christ is totally legitimate. I think that's, that's fine biblical language, but be careful about something. A lot of times we don't want to say we're a Christian because that marks us, that, that, that identifies us. That identifies us not only with Christ, but his people, Ugh, right? And I'm good with Christ, I'm just not good with his church. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, the church is my bride, and I know the church is messed up. I know the community of God is broken. I know it's full of mistakes and sinful people. But remember, Jesus did not come and die for the church because he found her beautiful. 
Jesus came and died for the church because he found her broken and sinful in need of healing and restoration. And so what Jesus is saying is that when, when you were called to Christ, you were not just called to him, you were called to his people. You were called to his community. This is your new identity. You are a Christian, a follower of Christ, who has brothers and sisters and family members that are eternal. Listen to what Jesus says later on in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12 about this. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. The nature of that construction, by the way, is that they thought Jesus had lost his cotton pick in mind. They were like, what are you doing? What is happening? You're out here embarrassing the family. You're telling people to eat your body and drink your blood. And oh my goodness, you know, come back in here, right? What are people going to think? And so what does Jesus do? But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Because obviously Jesus loved his mom, okay? One of his last acts while he was living on the cross was he entrusted the care of his mom to, guess who? John. But here, Jesus is purposefully using this sort of language to, to sort of demonstrate the radical nature of the new community and the nature of the way our relationships are transformed by virtue of the fact that we are now in Christ. And, and this, is a, this is gonna be a, 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 this is a tough one for us to hear, right? But, but this is true, I believe. Henceforth, the strongest bond between human beings is not blood, it is Jesus. It's Christ. Interestingly, um, Susan and I have talked about going to see this new movie, The Jesus Revolution. Um, it's about the, the hippie movement in the, in the 70s, and some of you still haven't recovered from that, either with your hairstyle or your clothes, certainly. But there's also a book that chronicles the Jesus movement of the 1970s, and it's called God's Forever Family. Now, now why is it called God's Forever Family? I mean, those of you who were there and participated in the, in the Jesus movement, you know this, that you have hippies and people coming from all walks of life. Some of them have been disowned by their families. Some of them have been disowned by their friends. And what they, what they, what they gained by coming together was a picture of heaven. This is the new community. This is the body of Christ. This is the church. This is God's forever family. Because why do you think God gave us the institution of the family in this life? It's to give us a foretaste. It's to give us a preview of God's eternal family. See, in, in heaven, what does Jesus say? There will be no marriage. There will be no having of children. The only enduring community will be the people of God. Guys, Jesus does not tell us not to prioritize our blood families. 
There's so many scriptures that tell us this, from Ephesians 5 to 1 Timothy 5. But what, what, what we are reminded of is that when we prioritize our blood families to the exclusion of our spiritual families, our church family, we're missing something. We're missing something vital. Our families, please hear this, church, our families are missing something vital. Um, some of you know that our, our oldest daughter, Grace, is married now and is living in, in D.C., which has been a, a super big transition for us to have one of our children move away. A lot of you have know this experience. You're living it. Some of you anticipate it and, and dread it, I'm sure, as we have. And they, they ended up getting married in the middle of COVID, which is just the perfect time to get connected to a church in the Northeast, right? Just the perfect time. And they struggled for a couple of years and lockdowns and couldn't meet. Well, they, they finally found a, a church home that they love. And Grace said something to me on the phone the other night that was, that was simultaneously painful but glorious. And here's what she said. She said, Dad, my biggest fear in ever having to leave here is that we would be leaving our church family. Now, as a dad, just get that steak knife and embed it deep into my heart. I'm like, no, no, we want you right here to take care of us as we age, please. Thank you very much. We don't want to drive 900 miles to see grandkids. We, we want you right here, right now, today. So there, there's part of me, that, and that's understandable. But the other part of me was like, that is what it's all about. You have gotten a taste of God's forever family. And I am incredibly grateful. How about you? How about you, Christian? If, you're, if you are a Christian, are you living out functionally what the Bible says is now true theologically of you? You now belong to Christ. You are a part of a new kingdom community of believers. We are going to spend all eternity together as one big God's forever family. And what he gives us in this life, and it's just such a brief life, isn't it? It's such a vapor. As the hymn would say, it's a glorious foretaste of vine. It's, it's, a, it's a shadow. It's a pointer to what we will have together forever in eternity. How is it that God would be calling you to reorient your life to his people this season? What, is, what would that mean in terms of your relationships, for your, for your service, for, for, your, for your resources, for your mission, which is going to bring us to our last point? The call to Christ is a call to community, to his church. It's also the call to a commission. Look at verse 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That word fishers of men, it literally means man fisher. Okay, kind of like man eater, right? Watch out, boy, she'll chew you up. Anybody? Okay, we'll keep going. And it says, I call you to be fishers of men. And by the way, that men in the Greek, it's, it's, it's a generic word. It means men and women, like mankind. It says they left their nets and their boats. Now, why is it that Matthew wants to highlight that part of this? That they left their nets and their boats? Well, of course, you know, their nets and their 
houseboats, they represented their livelihoods. Now, just with the relationships, let me explain what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not telling them to never fish again. It doesn't mean, I don't think, that they literally abandoned their livelihoods. And the reason I say that, at the end of John's gospel, when Jesus has, this is post-resurrection, Jesus has sent them to Galilee to wait on him. He finds them on the seashore. What are they doing? Fishing. See, I, I think what Jesus is doing here, again, he, he's just like with the, with the idea of family. He's telling them that this commitment to Christ, this call to Christ is radically reorienting everything about their lives. See, Jesus is using a play on words to signify that in their livelihoods, they now have a new mission. They now have a new identity. They are no longer only toiling for bread and provision. They are laboring on behalf of the mission to draw people into God's kingdom. And isn't it interesting that Jesus uses later in Matthew their vocation as a picture of what this is? Listen to Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Guys, let's be honest. We are in a culture that fundamentally derives its identity based upon what we do. Now, ladies, I don't know what happens when you get a group of ladies to talk about these things, but when you get a group of guys to talk about these things, we don't say, brother, tell me, what's going on in your heart? That's not, what, that's not where the conversation begins. What, what do guys always say to each other? What do you do? Where do you work? In other words, there is a lot of identity placed on what we do, where we work, who we work for, where, where we live. And Jesus is saying, it's not that you shouldn't work, but that's not your identity. Your identity now belongs to me so that whatever it is that you do, you now do as someone who is on mission. In other words, they're not just fishermen now, they're fishermen on mission. You're not just a homemaker, you're a homemaker on mission. You're a state worker on mission. You're a teacher on mission. You're a business owner on mission. Let, let, let me just say this. This is not a call for everyone to, to, to leave their vocations and their livelihoods to be full-time vocational ministers. And I, I, I kind of say this half in jest. We, don't, we have plenty of those. And I, I mean, God's going to call some of you to that, and that's great. I'm just saying that's, that's not what this text is talking about. This text is talking about that whatever God has called you to as part of your vocation, and he's called us all to some vocation, do we fundamentally view it as those who are laborers for the kingdom? That I'm laboring my, I'm leveraging my influence and my relationships and my time and my interactions, and that I'm just no longer merely a teacher or merely a state worker. I am a state worker, a teacher, a homemaker on mission. That God has given me this, this, this task of whatever I'm doing to be fishing for men and women. And when we have that category, guys, it transforms everything, doesn't it? We're no longer just hanging out. 
we're now hanging out with a purpose. We're no longer just doing things. We're doing things with a mission. Let me ask you this question as we, as we draw this to a close. What are you fishing for? See, even as believers, we are all fishing for something. We're all trying to, to catch some aspect of this life. For some of us, it's, it's we're, we're leveraging, we're, we're fishing for status or affluence or comfort or travel or experiences or, or, or a nice landing spot for the last quarter of our lives. We're leveraging for popularity. We're leveraging fill in the blank. And here's what Jesus is saying. As, a, as, a, as someone who is called to Christ, you are now re radically reoriented in your relationship to others. You're, not, you're radically reoriented in your relationship to your, to your work. Are you fishing for people? That's, that's the word. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make you fishers, not just of fish, but of men. Church, are we leveraging our lives, our souls, our spiritual life, our relationships for the kingdom of God? Now, as, as we prepare to come to the table in just a moment, let, let me just ask you to consider this. How did Jesus fish for us? How did Jesus fish for us? Yes, he called us. Yes, he sought us out. Yet, yes, he pursued us that while we were yet sinners, he what? Died for us. Jesus fished by dying. Jesus came with a mission as well. Jesus came with a purpose. Luke tells us that he set his face as flint to go to Jerusalem. Why? That's where he died. That's where he had to pay the sacrifice. That's where he had to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might be ushered into his kingdom. So I'm going to ask you just to spend a moment or two just silently before the Lord, preparing your hearts to come to the table, reflecting on this text, and asking God to orient your heart this morning to his kingdom anew. And as we do that, I'm going to invite our elders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements.